So now we turn to the word of God and we return to the first letter of Peter in the New Testament, the first of two letters that Peter the Apostle wrote uh, in the later years of his life. And uh, we are in chapter 1, going to read from verse 13 and uh, just to overlap a little bit with the previous section, you remember how we saw how Peter talks about the way that prophets and angels queue up to see these things that the Lord has done in sending his son to save sinners like us, things into which angels long to look, end of verse 12. And so verse 13 this evening, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Please turn with me particularly to verses 13 to 16. Words, uh, verses that begin with these words, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, and so on through to the end of verse 16. And uh, put your thinking caps on for a few moments, please. In other words, think quite hard with me, all right? Don't fall asleep. Don't drift off. Don't uh, say you're here for an easy ride. Use your, br- use your brains, Use your minds. 
I'm about to give you a very, very brief grammar lesson. Okay? Ready for that? In the Christian life, the indicative comes first and the imperative comes second. Have you got that? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. (laughs) Okay. So in the Christian life, the indicative is what is. It's a statement of fact. It's things as they are. So Ethan is sitting down is an indicative statement. Okay? That's the indicative. The imperative is a command, an instruction, an order. So, Ethan, sit down, would be an imperative. And he is sitting down, because he's obedient. Okay? Like the passage says. In the Christian life, the indicative comes first. We start with statements of truth, of how things are. Of what God has done. And then when we've understood that, the imperatives make sense. We start by saying, this is what God has done. We then go on to say, because God has done this, we need to do that. We need to live in a certain way. And that is the distinguishing, unique feature of the Christian message. What is our message? What do Christians proclaim? We begin by proclaiming what God himself has done. And we need to get that into our brains. What God has done comes first. And on the basis of that, what we do then follows. Every false religion puts it the other way round. Every cult, every version of the gospel that is not really the gospel at all, puts it the other way round. You need to do certain things, and then God will do something for you on the basis of what you have done. But we have no right to get this the wrong way round. You see, when a Christian preacher or teacher puts the imperative first and the indicative afterwards, the result is confusion and tragedy and failure and despair. Right? If, if my message was simply this, you know, when, we were, when our children were younger, we used to sing this song around the table sometimes. And sometimes we, we still do. Read your Bible, pray every day. Pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, if you want to grow. Anyone else know that one? Some of you do? Okay, you're brought up on that. Read your Bible, pray every day, and then you'll grow. Now, is that the whole of our message? No, it's not. If that was the whole message, you need to read your Bible, friends. You need to pray every day. That's the gospel, and you'll grow. Well, if that's all you know, that would lead to an awful lot of misery and despair. Because you'd say, well, is that all I can do? Nothing seems to be happening to me. How is that going to help me? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray every day? 
These are imperatives that are grounded in the indicative. What's the indicative? It's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's Peter's method. The first 12 verses of chapter 1 are all about the indicative. What's the indicative? I say it yet again. It's what God has done. We need to grasp what God has done for us, his people, in Jesus Christ. We need to hear about the great saving events of the gospel, that God, who so loved this world, sent his Son into this world, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his Son to live and die and to be raised to life. These are the great indicative events of the gospel. And when we understand these, the imperatives make sense and they are built on the indicatives. So what do we do now? Well, we come to these imperatives. And what Peter is doing in verses 13, 14, 15, 16 is he is now giving to us a description of the way Christians ought to think and live. He's giving us the Christian mindset. He's showing us the Christian world view. He's saying to Christians, here is the gospel. Here is the great gospel of what God has done. Therefore, on the basis of that, think this way, live this way, act this way. And what are the things that he says? Well, we'll cover as much as we have time for tonight. But the first thing that we see here is that Peter talks about sober minds. Have a look with me at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, well... There are some people, sadly, who profess to be Christians. There are those who follow Christ or say they follow Christ. But they can be led, sadly, tragically, into a kind of instability, into a state of mental disorder. And we need to be on our guard against anything that would be a kind of emotionalism that would bypass the mind, the mind, the way we think. And that's why Peter says, first of all, here in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. And the words he uses literally are actually something like this. Girding up, tying up and fastening the waste of your mind. May seem a rather mixed picture. But this is what he has in mind. If you lived 2,000 years ago, and you were about to go on a journey, you would probably be wearing a rather long, flowing robe or a garment of that kind. And you couldn't walk miles if you had these long robes always tripping you up as you made your way around. People would have to gather up their robes, tie them round their waist, fasten them securely, and then they would go. 
A bit like today, what do we do? We tie up our shoelaces or our boot laces. You're going on a long walk, a long hike. You're climbing a mountain. What do you do? You make sure you're wearing shoes or boots and the laces are securely fastened. Now, what's the point of that? Fasten up your mind, says Peter. Make sure you are mentally prepared for action, for living the Christian life. And doing that, says Peter, being sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? When you think of the word sober, you think to yourself, well, it's the opposite of being drunk. And it is. But Peter has a bigger picture in view. It's not only being not under the influence of alcohol or, or drugs or anything like that. It's being under the influence of anything that might cause our thinking to be dulled or distorted. Now, one of the effects of alcohol is this. It makes the drinker imagine that he or she is thinking more clearly and perceptively than when he is sober. People that have had too much to drink are under the impression that they are thinking with great insight. But it is actually a cruel deception. It's not true. Alcohol deadens and dulls and blunts the sharpness of the mind. The Bible has a great deal to say about alcohol. The Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol, but it does warn about some of its harmful effects. It says in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And Peter's point is quite straightforward. Christian believer, don't let the sharpness and the clarity and the discipline of your mind be dulled or distorted by any influence. Watch what goes into your mind. Watch what things affect you and sway you. Make sure that you are not under the influence of something that is unhelpful. Make sure that nothing in this life makes you giddy, causes you to lose your balance, causes you to have a, a, a skewed view of reality. There is some company we might keep, there are some influences we might be subjected to that actually have the effect of, of pushing our minds in an unhelpful direction. Well, says Peter, don't let that happen. Be sober-minded. He comes back to that, of course, later on in the letter. And then he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are you hoping for? There's a great many things in this life that we might be hoping for. If I were to ask you now, what are you hoping for in this life? What are you looking forward to? What are you dreaming about? There could be all sorts of exciting things going on, couldn't there? I can't wait for my next holiday. Oh, I can't wait for where we're going to go and what we're going to do. It's going to be brilliant. 
I can't wait to be in this or that year at school. I can't wait to meet this or that special person. I can't wait to get this or that uh, result or qualification or job or whatever it might be. And there are all these things in life that are going on and they do fill our minds with hope, don't they? But there is only one thing, says Peter, and there's only one thing, says the word of God, where we are to set our hope fully. Fully. Entirely. Wholly. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he is coming back. And in saying this, Peter is saying, don't let anything in this world suck in all your hopes, all your dreams. Don't put all your eggs in the world's leaking, cracked, emptying baskets. They'll fall through and get smashed. I'm putting all my hope in this life. Oh, I can't wait till I'm older. Oh, I can't wait till this or that happens. It's going to be brilliant. No, says Peter. No, says every Christian. No, says the whole word of God. Don't do that. This world and its present form is passing away. There will be highs in this life and there will be lows in this life. Your best friends and the most beloved people in your family will let you down. The opportunities that you put so much importance by, they will disappoint you. Those occasions and those seasons that you can't wait for, they won't answer all your wildest dreams. But as Christians, we say there is a hope, there is a glory, there is substantial reality. What is it? Well, again, it's in the great indicatives of what God has done and will do. Because one day our Lord Jesus is going to return and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and sin and sorrow and pain and sighing and all these things that we don't like in this world and our sin within us will all be gone when Jesus Christ is here. Our fastened up, tied up, sober minds are to set themselves fully on this hope. Sober minds. And then there's a second thing that Peter tells us about. He talks then in verse 14 about obedient spirits. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, quite literally, what does Peter say here? He doesn't actually say obedient children. That is a translation. The literal uh, version would be children of obedience. And that is quite a Hebrew way of speaking and writing. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Someone who has obedience as father and mother. Think of it like that for a moment. What is a Christian? A Christian is a soul who has been born again. If you are a child of God, you have been born again. When you were first born, you left the enclosed confines of your mother's womb 
and came out into a world of light and air and space and sights and sounds and faces that you had never seen before. You breathed a new atmosphere. You moved in a different realm. And that is what happens when we are born again. And we cannot, we cannot overstate the radical nature of being born again. It's so much there in Peter's first letter. When we are born again, we are born into a different realm. We are born into a new set of attitudes and with a new spirit that animates us. And it is the spirit of obedience. To be born again is to say, obedience to my God is my parent. I am a child of obedience. What do I mean by that? Sounds rather confusing, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the true, original child of obedience. He said to his disciples, you may remember, they were having a discussion about food. They'd been at this well in Samaria. It was getting rather late. They were getting hungry. They were talking about eating. And Jesus said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his Work. What did he mean by that? Jesus' whole motivation and attitude and desire in his earthly human life was one of obedience. I have come, he says, not to do my own will, but the one of him, the will of him who sent me. I always do those things, says Jesus, that are pleasing to him. The soul of Jesus was animated by one desire. I want to please my heavenly Father. I'm in the wilderness, he says. I've been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. I'm very, very hungry. Along comes a voice from the evil one suggesting that I do all these things, that I turn the stones to bread, that I throw myself off the temple, that I call Satan Lord, but I cannot do that. However weak and tired and tempted I am, because my food is to obey the will of my Father. And that is the hallmark of the life of Jesus. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And if you or I are born again, how are we born again? We are born again into the pattern and likeness of Jesus Christ himself. He is our pattern. He is our model. He is our example. Do not be conformed, says Peter here in verse 14, to the passions of your former ignorance. Do you recognize these words as being quite familiar to something else found in the New Testament? Doesn't Paul say in Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's Peter saying here? Don't 
forget that you have been redeemed. Don't forget that you have been born again. Don't forget who you now are. Don't forget that you have a new life, a new nature, new obedience. Don't don't go back into the easy, inevitable temptation to think and speak and act the way you did before you knew Christ. Don't be conformed to what you used to be. There was a time, says Peter, when you were ignorant. You had no saving knowledge of God. You had no saving knowledge of Christ in your heart. That's how you were. There was a time when you had never heard the gospel. But you are no longer ignorant. You no longer have that excuse. The Spirit of God is in you. And he is the one who motivates you and trains you not to be ignorant. So don't live as if you were ignorant. Know that you are now a child of God and live as a child of God. Now let me just give one brief area of application here, which I think is tremendously important. What is one of the most important activities in which you and I engage as human beings? What sets us apart from the animals that roam around this earth's surface and in the skies and in the seas? Well, the answer, I think, is speech. We are speaking beings. And the point I'm making is this. There are ways of speaking which belong to the passions of our former ignorance as Peter puts it. And Peter would say to us, in obedience, turn away from ways of speaking that characterized you when you were unbelievers. False speech. Lying speech. Malicious speech. Gossiping speech. Rumour-spreading speech, careless speech, corrupting speech, foul-languaged speech, and all such things. But you now, says Peter, are children of obedience. And here is the imperative we need here. Resolutely and soberly. With Christ in us, we gird up the loins of our mind and we avoid that kind of speech. Our speech, like our whole nature, has been born again. Our human faculty of speech has been regenerated. What does that mean in practice? We think before we speak. We say what is true. We say what is kind. We say what is necessary. We say what is helpful. We tell the truth. We don't flatter. But neither do we insult. We command and control our tongues so that we speak 
very differently to the pattern of speech we find around us in the unbelieving world. We still use much of the language of the world. We still speak about the topics the world talks about. We engage with the people around us where they are on their level, talking about their subjects and their needs and their interests. We do all those things. But there is now in Christ, with our regenerated speech, a marked difference in the whole tenor of our speech because we are children of obedience. And I want to come then finally, because time is almost gone, and I'll be very brief. The third thing that we see here, the third great imperative, is holy lives. And in verse 16 and 17, uh, Peter goes on to speak about holiness. I'll just read verse 16. Uh, Sorry, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now in just two or three minutes, what is this holiness that we are being called to? Peter is quoting from Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44. And in that context... The Lord is addressing the people of Israel and he's been talking to them specifically about their food, what they were to eat and what they were not to eat. He goes on to say to them in Leviticus 11, you shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Now, what is the great burden of the book of Leviticus? that Old Testament book of Leviticus. It is Israel's code of holiness. It was the Lord saying to his Old Testament people, you are a distinct people. You are my people. I've redeemed you for myself. Therefore, may your whole life, let your whole life and what you are and what you look like and what you wear and what you eat and what you do and what you say be different to all the Gentile nations across the earth who do not know me as the Lord their God. You be different. The command given by God to us today is essentially exactly the same. But it's not in terms of diet or clothing or feasts or ceremonies or things like that. To put it all quite briefly. What is it that Peter is surely getting at here above everything else? In the context of his letter, he's surely talking about what goes into our minds and the way we think. Old Testament Israel was to guard what went into their bodies. They were not to have contaminated bodies through eating what was unclean food. The application I would draw for us this evening is we, as people called to be holy, need to ensure that our own minds are not contaminated by what is unholy, by what is impure. 
If our minds are feeding on a diet of rubbish, impurity, tackiness, lies, and filth, and all the rest of it, we will be defiled by these things. Now, we live in a world where these things are all around us, don't we? They're on the media, and they're on social media. It's very hard to utterly escape them. But that means there is a greater necessity than ever for Christians to deliberately turn away from these things and embrace the very opposites. What does Paul say in Philippians 4 verse 8? We know these words. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. And long before you were born, and long before the world was even formed, the Son of God, he loved you. And God gave his Son for you. And in time, God gave you new birth and brought you to new life, to a holy life. And he says to us, now you are my children. You're children of obedience. Have sober minds. Gird up your minds. Don't have wandering minds. Don't have ill-disciplined minds. Think about what you think about. What goes into your mind? What goes into your soul? What goes into your heart? There are some things we can't avoid, aren't there? There are things we have to come across in our normal duties whereby we are confronted with things that are, that are foul, upsetting, sinful, disgusting, uh, grotesque, all the rest of it. But we set our minds on what is pure. And who is above all pure, true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable? Excellent. Our God himself. We set our minds on him. We look around this world and we look inside our own souls and we don't see any holiness. We don't see any purity. We see everything defiled, more or less. But we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and we see their absolute purity, glory, perfection, and holiness. Here is, here is the great indicative. God has saved his people and called us to be holy. And as we are called to this holiness, holiness without which no one will see God, we pursue this holiness in all our lives, in all our, in all our conduct with the strength and the power and the spirit that God gives to us in Christ. Let's pray together.
as we sang this morning, O Lord. You are full of truth and grace, but we are all unrighteousness. We thank you and worship you for all that is found in you. We thank you that though the Lord Jesus was in this world of of corruption and sin and misery and everything defiled, he himself was a lamb without blemish. He himself was the pure and spotless one. O Lord, we come and we, how we long to be pure. How we long that all the sin and stain and pollution that mars us would all be gone from our very experiences and from our eyes. O Lord, help us to love you more, to seek you more wholeheartedly. We thank you that your great gospel indicative tells us that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people that are for your own special possession and a people who are zealous for good works. We come to you now. We come praying that you would give us holy desires and longings. Give us again a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us see how glorious and wonderful you are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.